a hard one to say thanksgiving to God to, right? Heavy. Now, I've said this to a couple of folks. Well, first off, remember that this is part of our first of our four sermons that we did the bracket together. We went from 32 messages, and now we're down to four. And the book of the Bible that won was this one, the book of Amos. Some of you are like, I don't know if I should have picked that one. (laughs) Why did I do this? Again, the imagery here is painful and it's difficult, but as I have said on multiple occasions, sometimes these are exactly the passages we need to spend some time digging into. And so I invite you to sort of arrest some of those early feelings. Like, why is Amos saying these things? Because I will try to walk us through it. Don't get too upset quite yet. And the other thing, I told Jim this morning, I said, this is one of my favorites. I've, I've written papers on it. I've studied the original text. And so it's hard to like bring down to 10 or 15 minutes. So I'm going to try to move quickly. And that's part of the reason why we picked a big text. So in case you ever want to have other conversations about Amos, come Tuesday afternoon. We, we talk about it. But I want to ask this question again to each of you. How did you feel when I threw that house down? I heard some of you, but I want you to say it again for me. How, how did some of you feel? Angry. You were hurt. It made you sad. And it's uncomfortable for me as a pastor to lift up my hands in front of a bunch of kids and slam Legos down. Which, if there are other, very many other symbols of childhood and the goodness and the joy of childhood, Duplos and Legos are probably some of the best, right? So here I am. That's why I made sure to say I am a bully, because I wanted to have a piece of paper that I could tear off and say, okay, this is not really me. I think it bothered all of us when a good piece of work was destroyed, as if it had no value whatsoever, as if it was something insignificant, so insignificant that it took one individual in one moment like that, A chance to destroy who knows how many minutes, hours, days, years, decades of work. Because that individual found it of no real value. Because I think it breaks our hearts when something of value is destroyed. And friends, if you can take anything out of Amos and Amos 5 today, it is that simple truth that you felt just five minutes ago. When you learn the story of Amos and when Amos was prophesying, you see a world that is exceedingly wealthy. There probably were no better times in the kingdom of Israel than when Amos was prophesying. The king, Jeroboam II, had made good treaties with the people around him, and they just kept accumulating more and more and more wealth. They were living life good, such that, and and this is actually a historical fact, when you look at the archaeological records, you see there are some really nice houses around that time. 
other treaty documents around what's happening in the scripture confirm that at this time, Israel was probably at its zenith politically and financially. Amos talks about in part of this scripture that there were lavish condos being built on the hills around Bethel. There were parties going on where people would literally just bathe in wine, the choicest wine from their choicest vineyards. They could just lounge around, take any one of those ridiculous shows on MTV like pads or, or, or cribs or whatever, and imagine that just as a lifestyle for everybody. They were living good. But they did it. They lived that life at the expense of the poor around them. And Amos was going to make it really, really clear that that was not what God intended. God's anger at the people of Israel, which is the harshest and the most critical At the beginning of Amos, if you decide that you want to kind of read through this, you'll see the first couple chapters are all dedicated to these series of judgments of other kingdoms around Israel. And over time, you watch a spiral geographically hone in and hone in and hone in. And the last judgment is with the kingdom of Israel. And do you want to know what the judgment is? It's not perhaps all the other things that we could presume in terms of moral right living. No, it was because it was about the treatment of others economically and the mistreatment of justice as a result. It included, as you read later, issues around debt slavery, that the way that the culture there worked is that if individuals couldn't pay their payments, if they were in debt, they were shipped off into debt slavery to work to pay that off. And in fact, some of the laws were changed around that time that misconstrued the justice afterwards that would retain them in debt slavery for longer than what they needed to. They were caught in a cycle of poverty and oppression that they couldn't get out of for the benefit of those who were now living a lush life upon the hills. And it is this lack of care, the manipulation of the area, the manipulation of the economic system in that area that is leading, it turns out, to Israel's destruction. And if you read Amos 5 like we did, you see God's not screwing around. This is what I love about Amos. Amos is like, don't act like, oh, can we please pray, God, for the end of these times? Can we please pray that things are better? Amos is like, you don't want that to happen. Because it's going to be bad. And he uses language that I think in typical conversation would be a bit stronger than we'd want to use, but keep that in mind that it is that serious. That this financial manipulation of the poor was bad enough. That God's anger was invoked to this degree. The lack of care the manipulation of the market is leading to Israel's destruction for the benefit of a certain group of wealthy individuals. So we ask, because I think it begs the question, well, how how can they get out of this? Turns out it's not going to church. 
not living a better life, not saying, well, I'll make sure that I go and I, I worship a lot. This passage, more than any others, just aims directly at those of us who like to be church people and says, this is meaningless. Not just meaningless, but God says, I hate, I despise your solemn festivals and your assemblies. I'm tired of your ego music, writes Eugene Peterson in his translation. So Amos is telling us that just showing up and going to worship and doing the same things we always do without having some attention paid to what's happening around us is meaningless. That God will not pay attention to a paltry worship if we are hypocritical enough to not pay attention to what's going on around us. Oof. I think we so often worry about God not hearing our prayers because we aren't praying hard enough or because we haven't done this right thing or that thing I did 10 years ago as if it's all about us. When what Amos reminds us of is it has really nothing to do with our lives except that how we're treating those around us who are in more difficult positions than we are. That is the thing that opens God up to this conversation. Instead, Amos is telling us that God cares about our two words, righteousness and justice. This word here, oop, you go back. Yeah, righteousness. Those of you budding Hebrew scholars, zedekah. Just as a quick, the top ones, but go back. You're going too fast. Um, The top ones are like the consonants, and those little symbols below the letters are the vowel points, so that tells you the different vowels you're supposed to use. So that's what that all means. So this word, zadeka, righteousness, is a word in Hebrew that means honesty and accuracy and commitment to what is the level correct thing to do. It is right relationships and equity despite social difference. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, where you're going, or what you've done. We are on a level playing field. That all of us here gathered today on an equal plane. And God wants so much of that to rush down like a roaring stream. And not just that, but also justice. Mishpat is a word in Hebrew, mishpat. And that mishpat means that the steps that one takes to ensure that correct justice actually happens. It is the ties that bind together and hold righteousness amongst a group of people. So we can ask for equality. We can ask for equity amongst disparate people. But what we also need are the actionable steps that move that forward. And so Amos decries the people in Israel and says, what you are doing is wrong. Don't expect God to make it better later 
Right now, what you need to do is stop thinking that singing a bunch of songs and praying is going to help you go out and fix things. That's what I want. And as Peterson's message says, that's all I want. And it's an interesting thought to think, what would life be like if we started there? What would our worship look like? What would our prayers look like? What would the way that we sung look like if our first thought was Sadeka and mishpat, justice and righteousness flowing like a stream? Now, that's enough for me on any given day that I read that text to say maybe I should take a critical look at what I'm doing in my life. Hopefully, it opens you up a little bit to that too. And you'd think that if it opens us up in 2019, that perhaps right from the mouth of Amos himself to the people, they would have done something. Spoiler alert. Nope. It does nothing. Here's from Amos 7. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, and prophecy there, but never again prophecy at Bethel, for it is a king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered, Amaziah, I am no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophecy to my people Israel. If you'd had a chance to listen to the podcast that I released, talked a little bit about the background of Amos. Amos is a farmer just on the, southern, just on the other side of the border in Judah. He's a farmer. He's a rancher. He's kind of a normal guy. And God called him. And it's interesting to see that Amos brings this message so powerfully. He is tearing apart the seams of what's going on in the culture around him. And you'd think that maybe somebody had listened. And it's interesting that to Amatia, who is the chief priest, the prime representative in this whole story of what you would think the seat of God would be for the kingdom of Israel, it's interesting that only the political threat of Amos is mentioned. Only, it has nothing to do with the poor being taken care of. It has nothing to do with that. The only thing that goes back to the king is this guy is causing some problems. You might want to deal with him. And this becomes even more clear when Amatia tells Amos that he may not prophesy in Bethel because it is a royal sanctuary and a national temple. Bethel 
in Hebrew means the house of God. Bethel was set aside in Israel when the kingdom split to be the place where God would be worshipped in Israel. And now, it's like the Washington, D.C. of Israel. Oh, don't listen to what God has to say about what you should or shouldn't be doing. Don't, Don't pay attention to that. Amos, get out of here because we don't need to hear that. We have political interests here that we have to keep track of. So this irony should not be lost on any of you as a politically appointed representative of God explains literally that the house of God was completely under the control of the monarchy, Jeroboam, and its affairs are to be conducted in accordance with the requirements of national politics rather than religious propriety with the consequence of those whom have commissioned to prophecy are forbidden to speak there. That was written by some dude in some paper. Israel's worship was compromised. Because why would Amos have to show up in the first place to tell people what God was saying if they were actually worshiping the way they should have? What would be the point? The whole system of religion and power had worked together in such a way that that benefited the few over the many. In another translation of Amos 5, you'll read that the people that were in power levied what's a grain tax against the farmers. It basically said, because you are developing these grains that the rest of us eat, we're going to make you pay some extra. And as a result, Amos goes home. Nothing happens. And it's funny because Amatia, who you would think would be on Amos' side about God, is actually the one telling him to go home. Have you ever heard that before? That somebody who is trying to tell people to turn towards God and turn away from selfish ambitions and motive has shown the door? Because that clearly doesn't happen anymore. What I love about Amos is not that it makes me feel good, because Lord knows it doesn't. What it does is it makes me think, who am I called to be? And what actually is worship? And as a pastor now, it helps me think, what is my call to care for each of you? It's why that this exact passage was read at my ordination because at some point, friends, if we are not working towards trying to care for those who are poor, God does not care about what we do here. It is so easy to make these parallels the way we treat one another. When you meet somebody new, what's the first thing you ask them? What do you do for a living? It's always in the first conversation, right? 
And maybe if you, some of you don't, then you can disregard this portion of the sermon because you're doing really good. But even if that's part of our early conversation, what it does is it reminds us that we identify one another by our economic place in this world. That our value is indexed by what we do and not who we are. And in fact, we have a system that values some getting ahead over others. I want to show you these couple maps that they were just released. The uh, National Low Income Housing Trust, they're a group that pays attention to what's going on with affordable housing around the country. And this is their most recent, it's called Out of Reach Report. And what this report will tell you is, how much do you need to earn a modest apartment in your state? And if you can't read that, here's what I'll tell you, that there is no place in this entire United States of America that one can afford a modest apartment on minimum wage. Nowhere. Especially not here in Delaware County. We go to the next slide. This one's kind of fun. If you look over to the right, working at minimum wage, $8.55 here in the state of Ohio, you need to work 58 hours in order to afford an apartment. And that's not even a good one, necessarily. That's just a modest one. That's heartbreaking. we have a system that we've built that perhaps there are some individuals who are taxed more difficultly because they are simply poor. And this is why Amos is hard. And should you argue otherwise that this is not a good thing, it seems to be that most of the time you are called un-American at best, or you are perhaps shown the door. So I think the questions that we should ask one another, even if this is hard for us to consider, because, hey, Amos 5 is not easy. The book of Amos isn't easy. I'm going to stand by the fact that y'all picked it, not me. So hear this message and let it sting a little bit, because that is what Amos is trying to do for us. Ask yourself, what is modern debt slavery today? What are the ways that people are manipulated by the grain taxes in our society for the benefit of the most wealthy who live on the hills and bathe themselves in the choicest wines and show up on Sunday and believe if they just pray a little bit, everything is going to be okay because God is on their side. Amos says no. If we are not asking ourselves these questions, according to Amos, we are no better than the bully who stands and kicks Legos around from kids, destroying God's precious handiwork. And the question that scares me every time I think of Amos is will God even pay attention to what we're doing here today?
Does God even care? And perhaps the better question is if we're not attending to the poor in this area, should we care what's going on here on Sunday? Should we believe in the songs and the prayers and the sermons and anything that happens on Sunday if we are not examining what we're doing to the least of these? Because, friends, I'm convinced that that is at the core of some of the complaints that those who don't go to church anymore are talking about us. That it's that hypocrisy that stops people from coming here and finding a place to call home. And interestingly enough, if you notice, this has nothing to do with what typically are the top five or seven issues that we think the church should be worried about. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, you can't tell someone what they're doing wrong if you haven't fed them first. You can't expect someone to listen to a lick of what you're saying if they're hungry and cold and scared. So friends, let this be a wake-up call to us. If there was any reason why the Spirit led us to pick Amos, maybe this is it. Don't think that we are safe because we show up. Amos reminds us we are not. So let's go. And let's care. Thanks be to God.